Hey everybody and welcome back to another edition of the Open Forum podcast. Today we have with us James Esses. James was a criminal barrister and uh, he then decided to make a bit of a change for himself after doing some work on Childline uh, to uh, pursue a master's in psychotherapy and up until the third year was um, cracking along quite well, was also getting into opening up his uh, own private practice, I believe. Um, And unfortunately, due to a series of, um, I I wouldn't say unfortunate events, he was looking to help uh, and looking to safeguard evidence-based therapies, um, found himself uh, a bit up the stream without a paddle, so to speak. But listen, James, that's enough from me. We're going to explore all of that anyway. Why don't you take two minutes, introduce yourself to the audience, and then um, we'll just dive on into the topic of today. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Sonny. Yeah, your uh, your overview is pretty spot on. I mean, you know, that's that's really what happened. I, I was I had my head down. I was trying to change vocation. I wanted to spend the rest of my life helping people with their mental health because I found it so fulfilling at Childline. Uh, but I began to get concerned about what was happening in relation to gender dysphoria and gender ideology in a mental health context. And I was engaging with other therapists and clinicians who had similar concerns. And so I and others decided we had to speak out and take some action about this because the stakes were far too high in terms of what was happening to young people. I co-founded this group called Thoughtful Therapists, which still exists. Uh, We started a petition to the UK government asking them to safeguard explorative therapy for children. I did some associated publicity with that, very much focused on that core issue um, around explorative therapy and the ongoing debate around conversion therapy. And for that, I was summarily expelled from my master's degree over an email uh with no due process no appeal process no evidence nothing at all really and i was also given the boot from childline where i'd been counseling young people for about five years uh and i'm currently in the middle of uh taking litigation against my training provider and my therapeutic regulatory body okay now um I suppose if anyone's going to take some litigation to them, you're maybe one of the better suited people, uh, given your background with the law. Um, obviously, a different area of law, but at least you're probably a little bit more brushed up than than most might find themselves, given a similar set of circumstances. But what was it about this petition then that got the backs up of both Childline and your university? I, I don't know, to be honest. I, I, I was told that I brought the institution and the profession into disrepute, although I'm, I'm still not entirely sure how that could be. I think it's worth noting now, you know, we're, we're a year on, or just over a year on from when I was expelled and from when this petition took place. And in the Queen's speech that took place just a few weeks ago, the government have basically done exactly what it was that I was asking for, which is the government are pushing forward with conversion therapy legislation, but they are not including gender identity in it. So there is something quite strange about my training institution and therapeutic body saying I brought them into disrepute when the prime minister and the government of the day are doing exactly what it was that I was proposing in the first place. It's not quite, not quite uh, congruent then when you look at those two things side by side, when you look at someone being thrown out of the profession for exactly what's happening um, in, in government and in legislation. So 
what you were advocating was for children who might be um, suffering from gender dysphoria to, before they're given puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, or the option to <clears throat> transition, to be given explorative therapy, right? Well, yes, although that's actually a bit further down the line. The, the basic point being made was the government were looking to introduce legislation banning conversion therapy. We've seen this happen in other countries. The language and the wording of the legislation is very restrictive uh, and in some ways so highly ambiguous that it could potentially criminalise therapists who were undertaking simply explorative therapy. And so my ask of the government was, if you're going to introduce legislation, you must safeguard explorative therapy. So I wasn't even saying anything actually at that stage about the order of therapy, whether therapy should be a prerequisite to puberty blockers. It was simply please safeguard therapy in general for young children with gender dysphoria. So keeping it as an option on the table rather than allowing um, a government further down the line or the body behind the profession to say, right, this has been... Uh, unfortunately, due to the wording, we can no longer uh, cover this. This is no longer in the remit of what we do. Well, precisely. I, I've spoken <laughs> to therapists, including in America, including in Australia, where similar legislation has been passed, who are too scared now to work with clients and young children with gender dysphoria because they're worried that they're going to be made the subject of you know, malicious uh, complaints and they could end up chucked in jail as a result of it. And, and also the wording, my, myself and Thoughtful Therapists did a bit of scoping exercise. We looked at the wording of the various legislations in different jurisdictions. Most of the time they're copy and paste jobs of one another and, and very poor jobs at that. But they use terms such as suppress you know, if, if you suppress somebody's gender identity, then you could be guilty of conversion therapy. Well, you know, therapeutically speaking, that could potentially encapsulate any manner of, you know, ethical, therapeutic ways of being, including simply pausing for reflection, gentle challenge of, of a client, uh, exploration of previous history or potential uh, future possibilities and options. All of those one could argue are a form of suppression in the sense that you are pausing to reflect on something. But that type of wording in legislation is very dangerous and it could lead to untold consequences. As a result of this suppression, as you say, you speak to therapists uh, across the globe. Um, <clears throat> do you find that there's, as an unfortunate result, more just affirmation for children and their belief in their new gender identity uh, rather than because they're afraid of something going wrong, because they're afraid of being stricken from the board or negative reviews or what have you, rather than challenging it or uh, questioning the theory behind why someone might feel that way? Oh, the, the, there's, there's certainly a lot of that. And, and whether it's trainees on other courses that have been in touch with me or long-standing qualified therapists, both sets are terrified that something similar that happened to me will happen to them basically and that they will be their name will be dragged through the mud and they'll be excommunicated and kind of ostracized altogether so as a result a lot of them are just keeping stum and not saying anything um and as i said many now just won't work with these clients because they view it as you know less risky um which is a shame because those with gender dysphoria particularly children are growing in number every year and it's a very very complex, very sensitive you know, mental health condition. And as a result, 
we need clinicians, we need a good volume of clinicians, we need good quality of clinicians that are able and willing to deal with this in an ethical, neutral manner, not driven by ideology. So again, as you've already mentioned, wording is really important there. And you've said in an ethical and neutral manner, um, that that word right there, keyword, neutral, is really important. And what I've just said about affirming gender um, is you know, one end of that spectrum. And someone who's going to go to completely challenge it is obviously going to be at the other end of that spectrum. Your job as a, a psychotherapist, if I'm not mistaken, at least, um, I work in healthcare, but your job isn't to tell them to think or feel in one way or another, right? Your job is to explore and get to the bottom of what might be causing someone to feel that way and, and exploring things further, right? Correct. Um, you, you should not be going in with the predetermined outcome, which is crucial when we look at affirmation type therapy, because I've looked up the dictionary definitions of those words and they are incompatible with one another. You, you, you cannot be affirmative, but also not have a predetermined outcome. Um, but, but, you know, on, on all sides of the argument, therapists are taught and trained to bracket, that's the clinical term that's used, to bracket their own thoughts or feelings on or judgments on topics, because you're going to have any manner of clients from any sort of background presenting with any type of issue. They might be from different ethnicities, different religions, different political persuasions, things that you might disagree with on a personal level. For the purposes of therapy, it's it's utterly irrelevant, actually. And that's why you have a supervisor that you're able to bring these type of things to um, and make sure that you aren't letting your own prejudices or biases impact on the therapy that you're offering. And that, and I'm not calling for anything different. I mean, explorative therapy should do exactly that. But again, if you have a predetermined outcome and you've already decided before the clients even sat down in front of you that if they say they're trans, that therefore they are trans and therefore transitioning is the right option for them, um, you're not bracketing your own ideology. No, you're just accepting whatever's coming through the door as fact and essentially practicing on how best to help them um, realize that idea that they have rather than exploring the idea yeah. that they have and questioning the, the, the foundations as to why that might be. That's right. Yeah. And also just, just to say on that, that, that there is a distinction to be made here because if we think about medical professionals more generally, you know, the principle around the Hippocratic Oath and, you know, to first do no harm. Uh, and also generally, if we can avoid our patients or our clients going under the knife or undertaking uh, risky, irreversible medication, that should be the preference of me mental health and medical professionals. Uh, and to say that isn't in conflict with saying you shouldn't have a predetermined outcome, because, of course, we want people to have the less risk and to suffer as least as possible. And so in the same way is that a surgeon you know, will avoid needing to undertake risky surgery unless really it is required. So too, as regards gender dysphoria, because at the end of the day, if somebody comes to you for therapy and you engage in neutral, balanced, explorative therapy, and at the end of the day, that client leaves feeling accepting of who they are and not feeling that they need to progress down a path of medicalization, you know, surely that's a good thing. I, I've never said that medicine and surgery should never be offered. Uh, you know, I, I do believe in certain circumstances it might be appropriate. 
that if we're going to go back to first principles, we should be avoiding as much risk and harm to our clients and patients as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at least from what I'm aware of in, in studies and it isn't my roommate, so I haven't gone into that into too much depth on these studies, but there is a high proportion of people who suffer with gender dysphoria, who, if uh, going down the pathway of explorative therapy first, will choose not to transition and will settle into the the body therein, um, for lack of a better phrase. And that goes the, the same for children and teenagers, and especially during puberty as well. I mean, we all question ourselves a little bit. And something that perhaps we can touch on later on is the influence that social media and um, social pressures has on this. And maybe if that has anything to do with the sudden rise in people suffering gender dysphoria at all as you know when when i was a, a kid you had msn in my teenage years um yeah sorry a little chuckle there that's familiarity i i liked M- msn those were more simple times i missed yeah. those but you could disconnect from school you could disconnect from everything else going on and you had essentially your home life and your school life and you got to get away from things whereas now with the advent of social media children don't have that and whatever might be going on in one place is also happening on a screen in front of them whether they're at home or on holiday abroad but going back to what i was saying at the start that there are some studies looking into this there are some studies looking into um transitioning and explorative therapy right what what if it? What is it that the evidence is pointing us in the direction of at present? Well, one of the difficulties is the lack of long-term studies, particularly around use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and sex reassignment surgery. So, um, as a result of that, and, and I suspect actually, when this evidence does become available, it will be even more harrowing than we expected. But I mean, you've already alluded to a principle that is kind of colloquially known as watchful waiting. And again, there are studies, existing studies that demonstrate this, that, you know, the vast majority of young people, if left alone, basically, if not kind of medically interfered with, but supported, including with therapy, that they, yeah, they will settle into themselves. And then there's other studies that show that for young people who commence on puberty blockers, the vast majority of them will go on to take cross-sex hormones. And these two sets of statistics are completely at odds with one another. Um, and what that demonstrates is that medicalization commencing with puberty blockers is actually a slippery slope. And that if we didn't do the puberty blockers in the first place, actually, most of those children would settle into themselves anyway. And those puberty blockers are, I think, in some countries, things that the children can advocate for themselves, which is a scary thought. You know, you're not allowed to vote. You can't buy a pack of cigarettes or alcohol, but you can choose if you want to go on puberty blockers. I, that that for me is a little bit baffling but the long-term consequences of puberty blockers are still as you mentioned there's no real long-term studies and we do know that it 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 does interfere with uh reproduction right well if you one of the problems is that children of younger ages have been encouraged to take puberty blockers and them and their families are told if you, if you commence on puberty blockers prior to actually starting puberty, then if you decide to make a full transition, um, it will be a much easier process because you won't have gone down that pathway at all. 
Um, but obviously, one of the things that makes people fertile is the development of sexual organs, all the rest of it that come with puberty. And so if you're progressing directly from puberty blockers onto cross-sex hormones, having never actually entered puberty in the first, first place, that can cause sterility and infertility issues. Um, there's other studies more recently showing potential impact on brain development and, and bone growth. But at the end of the day, when people say that puberty blockers are reversible, I can't quite believe that they're coming out with that comment, because if we think about what a significant change puberty brings about biologically, chemically, physiologically, socially in a young person, to say that, oh, we're simply hitting a pause button, and if we come off the medication, you can just start a normal puberty a few years later. I mean, that's for the birds, because you have interfered with the body's natural processes. Uh, and a person, you know, a young person who sort of should have started puberty at 10, 11, 12, but actually then started at 15 or 16 when all of their peers have already, are already well on their way through it, that isn't a natural puberty, no matter how much you, you make that argument. So on that basis alone, they are not reversible. And that, that element brings us on to another question as well. So if someone does decide to stop taking puberty uh, blockers by the age of 15, 16, as you mentioned, their peers have all gone through puberty. One of the things that we know is the impact of social pressures and the impact that can have on mental health. So there are some high suicide rates for people um, who suffer from gender dysphoria. And there are also high suicide rates for people as I think it's the seven to 10 year mark after transitioning as well. The fact that kids, and some of these statistics come from grown adults, but the fact that kids are being put in this situation is a little bit scary as again, the brain is developing. And if they've been put on drugs that are interfering with brain development, that that's not going to help any underlying issues that they might suffer from. Well, precisely. And I mean, there's a, there's a few ways to spin this. Suicidality rates are spoken about quite a lot. And, and I've spoken to many parents who at one point supported their child transitioning medically only because they were told by the clinician of these high suicide rates. And some of them report to me as having been told along the lines of, isn't it better to have a, a trans child than a dead one? Which is a, you know, a horrific thing to be saying to parents. Yeah. And I, I've spoken to some parents who's, who, who supported their child down this route and have reported to me that their child, now that they have transitioned, is just as, if not more, suicidal than prior to transition. And again, that begs the question of, has everything been adequately explored? with that child with that individual as to what might be some of the underlying causes if we have the watchful waiting and we know that that has a positive effect now you mentioned right at the beginning for some people it it does work right there are uh, a subsection that actually transitioning is the way to go so is there anything that we can do or that we can see early on to see if this person is going to be a responder or non-responder in, in order to gauge whether or not it is going to be useful or not to continue down that pathway. 
well, I, I don't believe it's appropriate for children. You know, adults is a different matter altogether. But the problem with this is, and this is still floating about various gender clinics, um, but the idea used to be that somebody would be suitable for this kind of medical transition if they were persistent, insistent, and consistent. I think those are the three, uh, which is all well and good, except I've met people who, um, when they were younger, felt that they were trans, wanted to transition, and felt that they embodied all three of those mantras, and actually it would have been the wrong decision for them. And actually they're saying to themselves, thank God I didn't go down that pathway, and that my parents or the doctors didn't allow me to go down that pathway. So, you know, children in particular can be very certain about a very many deal of things, and, you know, feel that they've got their lives worked out and this isn't doing a disservice to children because we were all like this at the end of the day it's only by going through life particularly your kind of formative teenage and you know puberty years that you actually learn about yourself and what you want and where you want to be in the world to be asking children to um make a potentially irreversible decision about puberty before even commencing puberty is madness I was having a conversation with uh, someone the other day who's going through their A-levels who was unsure of what they wanted to do with the rest of their life and they're about to go from AS to A and they're like, I I'm going to drop this, but I have no idea what I'm doing. And you know, that that is a decision that you took as well. You made the decision to go and study law and, and go that way and you changed your mind further down the path. There are people that go to study medicine, which also takes a butt ton of time to do and a butt ton of dedication and persistence and consistency and change their mind further down the line as grown adults to put this decision in the hands of a, a child who I am very much different to the person I was 10 years ago let alone 20 years ago it seems baffling that people are supporting that wholeheartedly without fail and without any shadow of doubt that this is the best way to go i mean that there, there is an example of um young children or a young child that was transitioned even unknowingly and the outcome of that and uh something i mentioned before the the experiment conducted by john money and it was a case of, for those unfamiliar, two twins uh, were born as males who, um, during a circumcision, unfortunately, uh, one of which their genitalia was burned uh, so badly that the decision was taken by the uh, therapist, John Money, to undergo transitioning at an early age and let the second child live as a girl. And that unfortunately didn't have a, a happy ending. Um, and this was someone who had no idea and was forced that way and constantly felt growing up that they were in the wrong body. So their, their whole mindset was working in reverse of what we're seeing now with young children who are born in X way and want to transition to Y way. Is there anything that we can learn from things such as that and the effects that this is having with regards to, like you said, brain development, bone density on children. Is there anything that we can learn from that to, to put a hold on this and, and maybe 
would talk some sense into an otherwise nonsensical situation of children being the decision maker. Well, what you just described there is, is the very literal definition of being trapped in the wrong body. I mean, we're hearing that term bandied about quite a lot. But, you know, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that the surgery, the, the sex change, the surgery being performed, the doctor had decided this, is going to, this child's going to live as a young girl, but, but they, they knew deep down because what, what, that something was missing, actually. And, and this is something that had been there. But this idea that in all other cases, a, a young person or even an adult can know, they can just have a feeling that they were trapped in the wrong body, that the sex that they were assigned at birth is incorrect, that the doctor got it wrong. These are all terms I've seen, including in primary school um, textbooks. Um, I think has to be for the birds because we don't, none of us know what it's like to live as another person. None of us, none of us can ever be inside the mind of another person. And, and therefore, uh, someone born biologically male can never truly know what it's like to be biologically female, other than with recourse to stereotypes. And that's what we see time and time again, actually. It's if a young boy is saying they like dresses in the colour pink, well, that, that must mean they're therefore a girl. But that, that is re regressive, stereotypical behaviour. Um, and uh, boys are just as entitled to like the smell of flowers as girls are. I've again, I've seen, I've seen um, children's books suggesting that boys who like flowers might be girls trapped in the wrong body. What? Um, no. Yes, I'll, I'll give you a link afterwards if you'd like. Jeez, yes, um, please. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrifying stuff. And this is where safeguarding comes into us. Um, it, it's become almost a kind of consumer society. And, and we're constantly told that, ch you know, children know what's best for them. Children are the experts of themselves. Now, on one hand, of course, we should always listen to children and, you know, actively listen uh, and engage in respect and empathy and compassion. Uh, you know, I think for far too long in many other contexts, adults just, you know, pushed children to one side and said, you know, what you think isn't relevant, I'm the adult, I know best. So I think that's going too far that direction. But at the end of the day, adults are adults and children are children for a reason. And the same people who are advocating for children to be able to consent to irreversible medication, I don't also hear them shouting that the age of criminal responsibility should be eradicated, that the age of consent for sex should be eradicated, and that children should be able to drive cars, smoke cigarettes and drink alcohol from the age of 10. Why are they not doing that? At least if they did that, it would be a consistent argument. But actually, what they're doing is fundamentally inconsistent. It's. It, it, yeah, there's there's no other way to break that down other than they are aware of what it is that that they're promoting, that they're saying, and they know that it it just can't be and it just can't be right so we're not going to address those other things of alcohol or smoking or driving or voting or whatever else it might be because and i think it was uh yourself that said this on on another podcast that children they don't have a full understanding of consequences to their actions um and they might do something and and not fully comprehend the full scope of what it's going to be five 10 15 years down the line and to expect them to make such a big decision such a life-altering decision 
it may lead to an outcome such as detransitioning, which is also something that we're not supposed to be talking about. That's also something that across social media has almost been blacked out or there have been Reddit message boards about it that have been pulled down on multiple occasions or people that have been um, blocked out of social media, their accounts banned or whatnot if they talk about it, which is something that does happen and does happen to people that uh, transition at, at young ages. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about detransitioning and and what impacts that can have and has had on people? I mean, you know, some of the most abhorrent things I've learned have been through the maids of detransitioners because it's one thing reading statistics on a page, but when you're face to face with someone who has, for example, lost their breasts, uh, whose voice has been permanently changed, whose hair growth has been permanently changed, and it's got other um, various health ailments. And they're saying, I deeply regret this. And the doctor should never have let me do it. And my family should never have let me do it. I, I was only a child. You know, it's, it's so striking and so shocking to hear that. And the problem is that the numbers are increasing. That it's not well documented again partly because it doesn't seem that the powers that be are showing much of an interest in this. I mean, when I was looking at the original consultation for the government's conversion therapy legislation, they almost made no mention of detransitioners, which is quite worrying. Um, but also, I, I know a lot of detransitioners who are far too afraid to speak out, partly because they're extremely traumatised by what's happened to them, and they're basically the shells of the people that they used to be, uh, and partly because they'll be met with abuse and vitriol from the, you know, LGBT trans community. And I've seen detransitioners being branded as attention seekers, as fakes, as being told you were never really trans in the first place, which is an ironic argument for them to be making. Yeah. Um, so it, it seems that anyone who um, speaks out against gender ideology, even if they themselves at one point were supporters of it and actually went through that process, as soon as they speak out against it, they just become castigated and ostracised. They become a pariah to Correct. the whole society. Yeah. But the fact that it is something that happens and the fact that it's something that we're, we're not supposed to talk about should also make people's ears prick up a little bit i should hope and look to anyone listening we're not bashing the idea of transitioning completely and as you said right at the beginning it is something that for some people might be appropriate um but it, you need to be able to have all elements of the discussion open on the table and being able to be explored in order to figure out what the best options are for for an individual now for for those people that do detransition what are their sort of long-term outlooks then after coming off of the drugs after coming off of the the hormone blockers and all the rest of it how has their life been impacted to the best of your knowledge um, from those that you've spoken to and, and the things that you've read Look, it varies from case to case and person to person, depending on how far they've gone down this pathway, the age they were at the time, etc. For a lot of them, they are left permanently damaged, like it's permanently scarred, both mentally and physically. And uh, they, they would agree with this, that the, the, the detransitions I've spoken to would say the same of themselves. And they can try and remedy some of these things. Again, I know um, some 
girls who've had double mastectomies and then end up having to go get implants kind of put back in again. But it's not the same, of course. So there is no real coming back from it in terms of a medical transition. You know, somebody who's only socially transitions, there's an argument to be had there that they can reverse that. Although, again, I would say never fully, actually. Um, and there's also studies that show that if you live as the other gender for a period of time, actually that makes changes in your brain, which makes it less likely that you will be able to become comfortable with your actual sex. So um, even when young children are being told, oh, you can change your name or your pronouns or your dress or whatever, that is having an impact and that is rewiring their brains. Um, but yes, I mean, the, the, the consequences are, are, are awful. And I think the media and I think our politicians need to wake up to this and need to start listening to these detransitioners and their stories. It's very difficult to have a conversation with one of them and to not be captivated and to not be shocked by what has happened to them. Um, and if we keep encouraging and affirming medical transitioning for children, the numbers of detransitioners are only going to increase. Uh, what of the people that you've spoken to, is there a large amount of social pressure for them? Was there something that externally um, hyper validated almost uh, the idea to transition? Because one of the things that, that I've seen is people get onto message boards they get onto these open chat forums and they essentially find a community in a space that they were otherwise not fitting in. Um, there are lots of comorbidities for people who have gender dysphoria and um, it, it's unfortunate. But once they find that place to fit in, it seems to me at least looking at it from, from my perspective that anyone who finds a space to fit in will do anything to stay within that community and, and stay feeling wanted. It's, it's what we all want at the end of the day. We want to be in a space that wants us and welcomes us and feels warm and fuzzy to us. Is there an element of that for these people? And then after the fact, there is some realization that actually this, this wasn't quite for me. This, this, wasn't the right pathway i've made some irreversible changes and some ones that hopefully will be reversible but but yeah is there something to be said about the social pressures that are now being put on people uh 100 and it can come in different guises so for example a lot of charities a lot of youth groups for lgbt children are telling us as a society and the children themselves that being trans is something to be celebrated um and i always think of well, I think of a few things, but I think of what of a young person who has such a sense of disease in themselves or is so lacking in compassion or acceptance of who they are generally in the world to be accepted, to be um, celebrated. I mean, that, that's an incredible thing. That, that's something that any young person would crave, but particularly one who's feeling lost in themselves. Um, and I think that's a subtle form of pressure being put on them. If you come out as trans, you will be celebrated and affirmed and possibly for some of these young people for the first time in their lives. Um, and I think we should be celebrating all young people just for being themselves uh, and not just because they're trans. Um, then there's also the kind of divisiveness and the alienation that I see taking place. So for example, the charity Mermaids, which I speak about a lot and I've got significant safeguarding concerns in relation to them. Their podcast aimed at children. I've previously heard them say to children that um, family isn't blood. Basically, if your child, uh, if, if your parents aren't on board with transitioning, it doesn't matter. You can come and we'll support you instead. 
I've seen them run residential weekends for young people in which they describe to the young people, quote, the war that is raging against them in the outside world. I mean, this is very literally putting the fear of God in these young children and drives them further and further into the arms of, you know, these supportive other communities and families. And you've even got it coming from the medical professionals. And actually, because I want to get this right, I'm just going to quickly look it up on my phone because I posted about it the other day. There's a, a clinic called Gender GP. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a, huh. it's a, it's a private clinic that offers uh, medical transitioning to young people um, who can't get it through the NHS. It's come in for a hell of a lot of criticism around their practices. One of the co-founders has just been struck off the medical register and his wife, who's the other co-founder, is currently having her, um, they're looking at whether her fitness to practice as a clinician is also impaired. So she's also in front of a tribunal. While this tribunal is ongoing, I spotted on her Twitter the other day, she's one of the co-founders of Gender GP, that she had retweeted uh, a, a tweet from a, a trans person and said, love it. And this is, the, this is the statement that she said, love it to. Bear in mind, this is a clinician offering gender treatment to young people. Quote, being trans is cool as shit. Jump in, fuck it. What do you have to lose? And I, and I thought to myself that for a doctor whose fitness to practice is currently being considered to make such a dangerous statement is absolutely abhorrent. For a medical professional to say, fuck it, what have you got to lose? When we know that there's a hell of a lot these young people have to lose if they get it wrong is a disgrace. It's... <clears throat> Not, not to trivialize the, the the trans issue, but it's almost being treated like a flavor of the week kind of thing. And that, that for me is even more insulting to people that genuinely suffer gender dysphoria. If it's, oh no, it's just the cool thing to hop into. Almost like um, uh, the, the emo phase of, of uh, that, that kids went through during their teenage years. Oh yeah, you, you can be emo for a little bit, but yeah, you, you can go back to normal later. That's fine. It It's not a small thing. And to trivialize it as saying, fuck it, what have you got to lose? Just jump on in. It's cool. It's fun. That that flies in the face of all the people that have genuine struggles that are genuinely, you know, feeling like they're trapped in the wrong body, feeling like they have no place to call home. That's just really sad. I, that's just, yeah, I, I, I don't have a better way to, to put it than that. It's, it's insulting to people that really actually genuinely struggle. And then for someone like you say, in a position of power, who quite clearly, I think it's not far off for me to say, will just okay and affirm anyone coming in the door. I, I don't think that's out of the realms of possibility looking at how she's responded to a tweet like that. To be able to manipulate children in whatever way that she sees fit is a scary thought and to an extent it almost feels like grooming in a way that what mermaids are doing what this may or may not be uh doing and it it's kind of scary to think that there is this new open form of grooming that is just being allowed and allowed to be done and allowed to be spoken about because everyone's too afraid to speak up and to say something for fear of being cancelled, for fear of being struck off a register. 
Yeah, there's a lot of people complicit in this. And it, it's also no surprise. I mean, look, people have different reasons for doing it. Some people, as you've alluded to, just don't want to put their head above the parapet. They're, they're scared of being cancelled. For others, they can benefit from it. I mean, it's, it's very lucrative. I've done research into various private gender clinics in the UK who are making a hell of a lot of money off these surgery and these hormones. And, um, and the way it's euphemised and described, I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not called a double mastectomy by these clinics. It's called a gender confirmation procedure. I mean, you know, again, these are, these are medical professionals using this language. Um, there's a lot of money to be made from it. So, it, it, yes, it really is concerning. And going back to your earlier point around this doing a disservice to those who are actually suffering from gender dysphoria, which they, it can be a very debilitating mental health condition. A lot of the powers that be in this space would, would rather that we kind of don't pathologize this anymore, that it becomes an idea of self-ID, that anyone can be whatever they want, no matter what the implications are, and that's all right. And we see this in, in terms of the use of pronouns and self-identity. I, I saw something recently where a young person said that they were self-identifying as cake, like a birthday cake or something like that, because they feel that they are light and fluffy inside and also that they're made up of different layers. Now, putting aside the cringeworthiness of that statement, are we really going to do that? Are we really going to say that for every potential personality, character trait, feeling that one has in their body, that therefore we need to create a new gender and a new set of pronouns to correlate to that? It, Again, it's it's madness. This comes into something that we haven't really touched on. Um, what is gender and gender ideology? Um, yeah, what what is gender ideology? What is this? It's almost like critical gender theory that that is being promoted now. Well, it's most, in its most basic form, it is saying that one's sex and gender because often these terms are now completely conflated by ideologues were simply assigned to somebody at birth by a doctor by someone's parents that doesn't represent who they really are and it's only when they themselves have grown up and uh, that they know what they are uh, and that for a lot of people they were assigned the wrong sex at birth and therefore they should transition to remedy that um in my view, that's kind of it in a nutshell, whereas myself and I think most people would say these are two distinct things. Sex is binary. It is immutable. It isn't assigned at birth. It is simply observed. You cannot change your biological sex no matter how much you transition, no matter what you wear, no matter how you speak. You will always be the biological sex that you were born into. Gender expression is a different thing. It can be made up of kind of cultural influences and it could be stereotypically how masculine or feminine you are but at the same time we're all made up of a mixture of masculine and feminine traits and there's nothing wrong with that um, and people should be able to talk and present and dress how they want that doesn't make them the other sex and that doesn't mean they need medication or surgery fair succinct <laughs> <laughs> so it how do how how is it that we've moved from that which all is very reasonable and very logical and easy to follow to people identifying as cake. And I've seen people identifying as wolves, wolfians and, and things like that. It, again, it feels like a trivialization of something that is a serious thing for people who, as a result of which may not be taken as seriously. And two, 
will be viewed because they're then bunched in together with the the cake people and the wolfian people will be bunched in together with people that won't garner the the best view from from the general public and might even get a little bit of disdain towards them because of the fact that it it is in essence the, the cake and the wolf thing so ridiculous and now they're being lumped in with that it's unfair they they have a serious thing here that they're dealing with and the guy next to him sitting down in the chair next to him wants to be cake yeah i I can't make it make sense i i agree with you to an extent although what what i would add is that i think young people who are coming out with these new pronouns and wanting to be identified as any inanimate object or whatever like I do think actually, you know, therapeutically speaking, that's coming from some sort of place of disease. There's something that these young people are not getting either from their friends or their families or society at large, or even from themselves, in which they need to create a new persona, in which they need to get attention, in which they want to be celebrated. Again, as we've said earlier, we're teaching young children that these are things that should be celebrated. Well, why not come up with your own pronouns? Because you will get celebrated for it. I think children these days are feeling more and more lost. Um, I think that the way society is politically i think the impact of social media and technology as well i think it's a very difficult time to be trying to find yourself as a young person and so yes when i hear a young person saying that they feel like a piece of cake um i do roll my eyes and think what on earth is going on here i do try and kind of reflect and stay with that young person and as i'm kind of looking into their eyes often as they're saying this even you know on a youtube video i Underlying it, I see a sense of sadness and unhappiness and just unease in the world, actually. Um, so I, I do think those young people are, are as deserving as support as, as any others. But I, I do take the point that for young people who feel that it is just a fashion trend, that they can just come up with pronouns on a whim, and that's, that's grand, you know, that's a very different thing to somebody who's struggling with gender dysphoria. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying there. Yeah, good, fair, fair point. Um, what is it that we can do to actually help these people? Because I don't think we don't say to someone who suffers from body integrity or identity disorder, we don't say to them, listen, you don't like your arm. We're going to knock off your arm tomorrow. Don't worry. It will be all right. The pathway that is taken is to explore why, what, how, and how we can help that person. To someone that's suffering from an eating disorder, someone suffering from anorexia or bulimia, we don't affirm what they're doing and say, yeah, no, it's great, it's great. Keep eating one rice cake a day and and you know, keep purging yourself. You explore that problem and try to get to the root cause and ultimately aim to develop a better relationship with food for them and and nutrition and whatnot why is it then that we're straight or not straight away why is it that we're so focused on affirming this and what is it that we can actually do to help rather than just affirm it's because unlike those two examples you've given these are being treated through an ideological rather than medical lens. Um, And the starting point is ideology for all of this. Uh, And partly because, as I said earlier, people fear the repercussions if they don't affirm, if they don't go along with this. Um, 
you know, uh, a therapist or a doctor who doesn't encourage the client with an eating disorder to get liposuction or to keep restricting their diet is very unlikely to be labeled anorexophobic or bulimophobic. Or, I mean, those, those terms don't exist because they're not a thing. But for a doctor or therapist who wants to challenge a young person as to whether medical transitioning is the right option for them, they will immediately be labeled as transphobic. And that word sticks. I mean, it's bandied about so much these days that I think it's actually diluted its effect and meaning, but still it sticks and you'd be called a transphobe or you'd be called a bigot. Um, I have seen this actually move into other rounds of medicine as well, particularly around obesity, for example. Um, and actually, interestingly, and that's the thing, this whole idea of intersectionality, you see all of these various ideologies kind of coming together quite nicely because um, I watched a video before with a uh, person with gender dysphoria and at the beginning their clinician, I think they were American, their clinician wouldn't let them have, uh, I think, cross-sex hormones. They said that they weren't mentally ready for it, yes. And this young person said that my doctor is... Um, transphobic and then you follow them and a few years down the line they've eventually had the medication now they want the surgery the cross-sex surgery and at that point the doctor says that they they feel comfortable giving them cross uh, giving them cross-sex surgery but they need to lose some weight first because this patient is was obese and the health implications of performing surgery were far too risky unless they lost weight and this young person then goes on to youtube and says not only is my doctor transphobic they're also fat phobic now as well um, so we're in this position in which if a young person or any of these ideologues don't get their own way, it has to be because of the bias or prejudice or bigotry of the other person, even if that other person is a medical professional with their best health interests at heart. And this is the problem with identity politics and victimhood. You know, it pays to be a victim. Absolutely, it does. Um... And it's not just the victim that's getting paid from it. It's, as you said, it's the clinics, it's the pharma companies that, that are selling these drugs, these surgeries that are all too happy to continue down that pathway. So, so what is it we can do as the Everyday Joe blogs in order to help people that may be around us that may be struggling? Is there anything that we can do to help them? Well, we need the national landscape to change a bit. So uh, in the first instance, simply speaking out, if one, if one feels able to speak out and to, and to know that there is support out there and that there is a silent majority on this topic to speak out because that's the only way that we're going to get the media to start changing their coverage. And it's the only way we're going to get politicians in general to change their focus and their views on this. Um, because if the legislation goes against us, it's going to be far more difficult to safeguard these children. Um, I think for parents, it is unfortunately interrogating what your children are being taught in school. I've spoken to many parents who for so many years felt that they could just entrust their children to these schools and then accidentally have come upon what they're being taught in RSE or around sex education and they're horrified at what their children are basically being indoctrinated with. Um, so I think for parents, it might be having difficult conversations with your child's school and also just talking to your children more generally, um, because there's so many potentially negative influences out there, whether it's the schools themselves or whether it's these online communities or these charities now who are, you know, posing safeguarding risks. Um, 
but I, I don't know how it's going to go. Uh, you know, it feels that like the tide is turning in the UK. The conversation has shifted a bit. As I said, the Queen's speech was very favourable. Even Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, I mean, it took him a long enough time, but he came out and said, you know, men are men and women are women and there are biological differences. So that's a sign that things are moving in the right direction. Elsewhere in the world, I mean, America, uh, I'm really quite concerned about. And if we ever get the UK into a good position, I think that will be the next place that we have to go because they're far more down the ideological tracks than we are. And I'm not sure how they can come back from it, actually. Um, but I think it's just about, in the first instance, simply having the conversations. We need to start a national conversation. You know, this is everyone's business. It affects all of us, actually, and because it, it affects our future generations, our children, our education, our free speech, our safe spaces, our sports. I mean, I, I keep, I always say it's, I feel like a broken record. I keep saying it's the issue of our time and I'm going to keep saying it because it is. I wholeheartedly agree. And like you say, the situation in America where it's bled out into every aspect of, of day-to-day life, uh, sport or what have you, it, it, it's scary to see just how quickly it's all happened there and how quickly it's all been assimilated into society. Um, that, that Something I mentioned to you before, that I, I don't think we'll have time to get into, that Desmond is great. You've got children that are performing drag shows for grown adults there because it's just been so a, a big green tick, a big okay, yeah, it's okay to do this, get children to dress up in drag and, and strip on stage um, for grown adults who are then putting money in like they're going to a, a normal strip club. It, it baffles the mind that this is a, a real, real thing happening in uh, this day and age. But you've said people need to speak out and um, I'd be remiss if I didn't address something that I, I didn't ask you about at the start of the conversation. People are afraid to speak out and they're afraid to speak out for a reason, a reason because they're afraid of being cancelled. They're afraid of having their qualifications taken away. And that is something that has unfortunately happened to yourself. You were three years through on the, the master's program, and then you were kicked off the course. What are the repercussions has speaking out had for you? Because I think just like people need to understand the full consequences of transitioning, People also need to understand the consequences that might occur if they do speak out, just so you are fully informed. Mm. It's, a, it's a valid point. And I think people do need to consider whether they are in a position to speak out. Obviously, I'd, I encourage people to if they feel able to. But, you know, the repercussions can be significant. People will come for your reputation or your livelihood. You know, for me personally, it's had a significant impact on my life. I mean, my, my future life plans have kind of gone up in smoke, basically. Um you know, as far as I can see, my reputation in this field is kind of being dragged through the mud. Um, the money, the years I'd put into this training, all gone out the window. So now that's why I'm bringing this litigation to fight for some compensation and, and to fight for my dignity and my integrity and my um, reputation again as well. And it's, you know, it's taken a mental toll as well. I mean, these days I, I seem pretty resilient and that's partly because I, I can't just stop fighting you know the, the the issue is too important actually uh, and i've got I, I feel so passionate about it but at the time it occurred i was a bit of a broken man and i still guess a hell of a lot of abuse online a lot of falsehoods being slung at me and the usual kind of you know uh, bigot transphobe 
false accusations, you know, wishing ill health, even death upon me. Uh, and I'm look, I'm, I'm not alone and some people have it far worse. Um, but that's kind of unfortunately par for the course when you do put your head above the parapet. So, I, yeah, I, I think it's important that people do go into this with their eyes open, although I would say at the same time that I, I have no regrets. Um, I do the same thing again. And as I said, there's a, a huge amount of support out there. There is a silent majority. And, and speaking personally, if somebody needs my support in helping them to come out and speak out about these things, I will do whatever I can to support them as well, because we all must support one another, because there comes a point in which if our voices are loud enough, they, they can cancel everyone, you know? So I, I will always come back to that. And I think that the stakes are far too high to keep silent about. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And hats off to you for, you know, choosing this path and continuing on this journey. And I, 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 I can understand it hasn't been a, an easy one to walk down. And uh, I, I think, as you say, if more people were to do it, it does become a lot more difficult for them to cancel everybody because you can't just shut down the whole of society for it. You can't just shut off everything, turn off Twitter, turn off Instagram, turn off Facebook. It's just not going to happen. There will be a point in time if enough people come forward that this will become an open conversation for people to be able to have without fear of being labeled a transphobe, a bigot, what have you. And especially when it's someone such as yourself who is only trying to help people and protect children. I've got a six month old myself and I can't imagine how difficult it's going to be for, for him to grow up in this world. And to think that, these are things that are going to be affecting him. I'm already racking my brain at night on how best to protect him and how best to inform him about the world and the things that are going on. So it it is something that is going to be a bit of an uphill battle, but I hope that we'll get to the top of that hill. I think we will. I do. I, I can't say when, but I think we will. And yeah, I hear your concern. I, I'm, I don't have children yet, but I, I understand that because you're seeing what's going on around and, you know, there comes a point for parents which they have to, as I said earlier, entrust their children to someone else, particularly a school. Um, it's, it's, it's really scary times, but I, I'm confident that we'll get there in the end because, well, I just don't see how we can't actually. Like th- this, is, this is the scandal, the travesty of our time. And I do think we'll look back in years or decades to come and think how badly we got this wrong. Um, so in my mind, we, we can only win out here because it's logical, it's moral, it's ethical. I, I, I pray and hope that these principles win out at the end of the day. Yeah, it's, it's not a matter of if, just a matter of when. Uh, look James really really appreciate your time really appreciate you speaking with us on this Friday afternoon and uh, I want to wish you all the best with uh, the litigation going forward and uh, yeah we'll hope to hear from you again soon thank you very much thanks for having me on cheers